how do you learn to run a business? How do you learn to start a business? Where do you get the skills? Where do you develop them? Are they taught in school? Are you meant to just intuit them from the universe? Or do you learn from people? I've been learning for years about how to start a business from books, courses, people. Some have set me back. Some have helped me make progress. But I always find it fascinating. How do you really learn how to be an entrepreneur? The extraordinary belongs to those that create it. Rebelling against business plans and debt, rebelling against what society expects of us to build cool businesses, make money, have fun and do good. Let's create something extraordinary together. Welcome to The Rebel Entrepreneur. Welcome to The Rebel Entrepreneur podcast. I've been looking forward to this episode. You don't know this, but I've been looking forward to this episode for months and months and months. I have with me Jessica Yox of Cleveland State University, your Associate Professor of Entrepreneurship. That's the coolest title, Professor of Entrepreneurship. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you so much, Ellen. I really appreciate being invited. I am very excited to do this. I've been looking forward to it for months and months as well. <laughs> so how long have you been teaching entrepreneurship now? Yeah, so I started teaching entrepreneurship about a year ago, actually. I had the opportunity to take over an entrepreneurship toolkit course with Cleveland State. And then in the spring semester, had the opportunity to teach that again and added an entrepreneurial finance course as well. Wow. So how do you get into teaching entrepreneurship? I mean, I stumbled into it, but how do you get into this? How do you start? Because you have an official title. I have no official titles. I just rock up and say I can help people. Like, how did this begin? Yeah, so I am a small business owner. In Cleveland, we have small business development centers that one of our friends who had recently started a business pointed us in that direction. That's where I met the director and she helped us start our business, do the legal paperwork. You know, we bounced ideas off of her right when we started. And then four years later, I was sitting in her office asking annoying accounting questions <laughs> to her accountant that she contracted with. And I had, you know, told her that I was leaving my job, which was in high school education. So I was a high school teacher for several years and then a high school administrator. And I was sitting in her office and told her that I was going back to school to get a master's degree full time. And it was the only time in my life I've been in the right place at the right time. But she said that she needed a graduate assistant. And did I want to do that? And so that was the interview. That was the whole thing. I had the opportunity to serve as her graduate assistant at the Small Business Development Center for a year. It helped pay for my master's degree, which was awesome. And it was her class that I took over teaching. And so I really just happened into it, which was awesome. <laughs> but that's sort of the trajectory. So you just happened into this stuff. What I love is that this came from you starting your own business, and one of my biggest bugbears with entrepreneurial education is it's quite often run by banks and bank managers who've never started a business. It's run by universities with professors who haven't started businesses. It's run by accountants who've worked for accounting firms who've never started a business. But you've actually built a business. You've actually done that. What was the business you were building as you've stumbled into this? Yeah, so the business that my husband and I run is 2-1 Fix Bicycle. Good promotion. Yeah, it's a mobile bicycle repair shop. And so cool. we set appointments to go do bike service right at our customers' homes or places of business right on the spot. So you might wait for an appointment, but once we're there, we tune the bike up, 
an hour and a half, two hours later, and it's all set. I love that. So if anyone's listening from Cleveland, how do they find your site to get their bike repaired? Yeah, so it's 21fixbicycle, all spelled out, dot com. So it's T-W-O-O-N-E-F is in Frank, I-X-B-I-C-Y-C-L-E dot com. I love that. 21fixbicycle.com. Awesome. So you built that business. You must have learned a lot of lessons along the way building that business. What did you learn? Because you do that with your husband, is it? Your husband you run that with? Yeah, well, at the time he was my boyfriend, which was risky, but we were, you know, <laughs> ready to take it on. Uh, you know, we weren't at the time going for like bicycle domination. We just wanted him to like his job. And it was time for him to leave the shop that he was working for. And we interestingly did approach that shop to purchase, but that didn't seem to move. And in that time, we we're able to convince ourselves that mobile was the way we wanted to go. And so we put the things in place. There are tons of lessons that I learned along the way, especially how to work with your significant other. Probably like a year into it, I got asked if I would speak about working with your significant other and advice. And I was like, I don't know. I have none. It's hard, you know, but we've gone through the, the paces. We're now married and we're in our fifth season of business. I love that. We're now married and we're in our fifth season of business. It feels like they kind of tie up there some way. They certainly do, yeah. I feel like there's an episode idea here that Katie should come on the show and your husband should come on the show and we should talk about working with your significant other because I think that's something that a lot of people, even if you don't work with your significant other, if you run a business, you work with them, even if they're not directly in it. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah, no, it would be an interesting episode. There's lots of lessons there. So here's a question. Are you glad you weren't able to buy the bike shop at the start or do you wish it had gone through? No, I'm I'm glad. I think that we picked something that really aligns with the issues that customers were experiencing in the industry. And so we found the thing that people complained about the most and found a solution to get through that. This was all before I found your content, but we started with just like a Ford Explorer that was very old and near its the end of its useful life. But we didn't want to invest really that much in the business until we could prove that we could make something of it. And so we were very bare bones for the beginning. And then once we had two seasons under our belt and we thought, all right, this is actually an idea. This is actually a concept. This could work. That's when we started to invest further. I love that. I guess in terms of things that we've learned along the way, you know, we didn't start with a business plan. We didn't do any of that. We just decided to try it and see what happened. But I think that in doing so, we definitely had a vision for what it would look like. And it looks totally different. And I'm very grateful that we didn't spend as much time thinking through all of the different pieces and parts. And, and, you know, that certainly has had consequences. And we've had to really think on our feet sometimes, but we just started, we just did it. And I I had like a snow day from school and I built the website. It was just like, (laughs) I'm going to get really good at Wix today. And I finished it at 9.30 PM. I don't know how to use Wix anymore. It's fairly static, but that was it. That was the end of it. I love that. So you just built it. You just got it out there. I did have a question just from the start of that. You said you found out the biggest problem in the industry and then fixed it. How did you find out? Because that's, that's one of the things we say to everyone is find a problem and fix it. That's entrepreneurship, find a problem, fix it, charge someone for it. How did you find out the biggest problem in the on in the bike world? 
like how did you find that out how did you know what to offer sure so my husband did manage a shop and so how at least it works in Cleveland is you have a bike problem, you bring it in, you drop your bike off, and then the bike physically holds its place in line while it's waiting to be worked on. Mm -hmm. So if you have a three week wait, right, if you're three weeks behind, that bike is just sitting there for three weeks. Well, we have a three week wait, but you can be riding if you don't have a massive repair that needs to be done. If you just want to tune up, you just want it to work more efficiently. That's great. You can keep riding and then we'll show up at two o'clock on a Tuesday and take care of that for you. The bike itself doesn't have to be present in that waiting process. I love that. And that's exactly what Katie and I found. We also found it was very annoying taking it to the bike shop. You take time out of your day, you go there, you drop it off, you then have to pick it up. Like it's just a pain in the... uh... It's just a pain, uh, a pain. that yes. process. So you've made it easier for people. You charge them, you rock up at their house. So how, like you five, six seasons into this, and you say seasons, I assume, because bike work mainly happens in the spring when people are getting their bikes ready for the summer. Um, is that correct? Yeah, we consider our season like mid-March to mid-October, and we are working on being nomadic in the other times. And so we don't necessarily want, we want to go out and ride too. That's a thing that we'd like to do, but we don't really have time in the summer. So we're planning on leaving for the the off-season. Then you can go to warmer climbs and cycle yourselves uh, exactly. and then come back and work. I love that idea. I love that idea. You can also take advantage of geo-arbitrage and earning dollars in Cleveland and then go and spend them somewhere else warm. What a wonderful idea. Yeah. So you you built this business. You started it that way, which I love. Then you get this job teaching entrepreneurship. That first year of teaching entrepreneurship, did you have a curriculum to follow? Were you, were you just sent off? Here you go. Here's six people. Teach them how to build businesses. How did it work? Yeah, so I had the former syllabus and some idea as to what sort of the course description, what the students saw that they were uh, enrolled in. That being said, I am a rebel in sort of all things. And so if I'm going to teach it, I want to teach the content that I feel is like real and relevant. And throughout my time as a graduate assistant at the Small Business Development Center, that was when I found your content. And it could not have aligned more perfectly that the Rebel Entrepreneur podcast was released during the first semester that I had the opportunity to teach. And so, you know, first of all, perfect. Second of all, it's COVID. I don't have any in-person classes. And so instead of listening to me talk about entrepreneurship two times a week for a couple of hours, I brought in uh, Cleveland-based entrepreneurs to tell their stories, which were often more traditional. And then I had the students listen to Rebel Entrepreneur content and also lean on the now Rebel Business School content. They had to read all you know different articles and respond to prompts and, and things of that nature to have an alternative view of what it means to, to start and run a business. I love that. So the podcast, the, that first season of podcast became some of the content that then the group of students and you discussed afterwards. What was it like discussing the five ways to build a business with no money with those students? What happened to the students? How did they feel? Because they've come to a university to learn entrepreneurship, which comes with some expectations. Yeah, definitely. So I think that the initial thought, especially with that particular episode, which I love so much and blew my mind the first time I like listened to those principles, I 
don't know why, but it always goes to like, well, is this legal? What what is not legal? I don't know what's not legal. I don't understand sort of why that's the first thought, but you're collecting money before you deliver something. I'm like, yeah, have you heard of Kickstarter? I I don't know. And so the idea of, it, it depends on the industry also as to which students sort of grasp it right away and which are struggling. And It also depends on how far along in the sort of traditional thought process they are. If they want to own a restaurant and they want it to have an Instagram worthy aesthetic and everything has to be customized and that's the vision of their business. And then I come along and say, well, what if you borrowed some space to do pop up dinners on occasion while you're working to get started? That's so far off from what their vision is that it's often more difficult for them to sort of see through this lens. It's the students that have considered entrepreneurship, think that they want to start a business, they're not quite sure what yet, or they're really open because they are either risk averse or know that they would have to take out a significant amount of funding and don't know how they would even possibly go about starting that. Those are the students that seem more interested in in this content. It's really fascinating because for years we had people turn up at the Rebel Business School in uh, the UK and they'd turn up, some of them would turn up physically with a business plan and they'd have a 20-page document that shows what they want to do, how much they want to borrow, and they had a very, very fixed vision of what this thing is. And I think that's actually the most difficult thing to shift because they can see the shop, the beautiful sign, the layout, they can see this thing and that's what they want and nothing else will do. And that's the most tough bit. And I think what you said about your bike repair shop, the starting vision you had shifted quite quickly. And that's exactly my experience. Every business I've started, I start with a vision and very quickly realize when I try and sell it to some customers that my vision isn't quite what the customers want or something's changed and I have to shift quickly. And my vision always changes, even though I had a strong vision at the start. But getting people to realize that you can get to that vision, but let's start somewhere else and it will lead to it. That's That's been one of the hardest things we've had to do. And I know we lose students on the course because of the strength of their vision and they want to borrow 100,000 and go straight to it. And I keep saying this is hugely risky. Test it. Do a mini experiment. Sell something first. If you sell something, you know it works. And yeah, I find that really difficult to shift those. I think after two weeks with me on a Rebel Business School course, like you get battered into submission and have a go at trying something else. Yeah. How have you helped people to widen their vision? Or do some of them just, they're still hanging on to that vision? Yeah, definitely some still hang on to that vision. But I think I am very open at the very beginning of the course as to who I am and what my mindset is from both uh, the perspective of a professor and also the perspective of an entrepreneur. And so I am very upfront. I, I don't care about points. I just want you to engage. I want you to learn something. And that was true when I taught at the high school level and also now, I definitely have stripped my syllabus of anything that I just don't want to be part of the grading process or a part of the educational experience. So I think that very quickly they learn that this course is going to be different than a course that they've had previously and that they might have to do some unlearning as to what school sort of looks like. And then also with the business plan process, occasionally I will approach it from the perspective of 
bank loans, bankers are more, at least currently, more inclined to loan to an existing business than they are to a startup. And so yes. why don't we get some sales? Why don't we test it out? Then you can go to the banker and say, I have this $100,000 growth opportunity instead of I need $100,000 just to start. I love that because you're exactly right. Like The riskiest thing in the world is to lend to a startup, but there's lots of pressure to lend to startups because we want to increase startup rates within the community, uh, within the countries. We want to build startups. So the obvious thing is to make money more widely available because it takes money to make money. You need money to start. That's the, the general belief around business. And I do think it's still the general belief in the population that it takes money to make money. I mean, do you come up against that? Does that belief affect your courses? Definitely, especially when it comes for the discussions and examples in the area. I think that very infrequently students see or like notice things that companies are doing. But for example, we when we started popped up at a local farmer's market. All of those businesses are testing their products. That's what they're doing. And so being able to point to examples of people who are actually doing this, even though it might not be broadcasted, right? It's not something that they're advertising. We're just testing out this concept. But in reality, for <laughs> lots of these people, <laughs> right? But for a lot of these people, that's what they're doing. There's a, a local company that set up at farmers markets with. I believe it's homemade dog food and they have since expanded and they have a delivery service and they have a storefront. And, you know, that was their test. They tested it out, whether that was what their intention was or not, but that allowed them to expand. And so being able to point to those different examples in the area, and I have seen, especially with COVID more become available for me to point to, I think that's when the resistant student starts to understand that this is not that foreign. It just might be framed differently. And I think people are out there running experiments all the time, but you'd never know. I'd never admit it. I just try and sell something. If it sells, I've got a business. If it doesn't, I pretend it never happened. Uh <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> Entrepreneurship, ladies and gentlemen. Like, here we are. <laughs> There's been so many I've tried. I tried one selling something to corporates and I sent out loads of emails and I actually got some positive responses. Simon was sent, meant to send an email with me for whatever reason he hesitated and the idea died and then you just kind of pretend it didn't happen and maybe the idea will resurrect itself in the future. But I think there could have been three or four sales, but there wasn't enough to like give it the actual weight to be able to get going. And then you go, okay, this idea is not quite what I wanted it to be. And you just forget it happened and have another go. But I think this is where it becomes interesting. The concept of the sunk cost fallacy, which is I have sunk my time, my resources, my energy into this project. And so I'm holding on to it because it has to work because I've already spent a lot. I might not have even spent money, but I've spent weeks writing the business plan, years thinking about it. I have sunk costs and then I'm unwilling to let go of it. How much do you think the sunk cost fallacy plays in to people who won't let go of the vision, won't let go of the idea, won't change in face of market feedback? That's the whole thing. It's just, I came up with this idea that's, I think, a pride piece, but then also I spent so much time and energy and effort in this thing and it has to work. And that's where I think being open to pivoting 
and not pivoting to another idea and then continuing the one that's not working, but truly saying, okay, what are the customers saying and how do I meet that need as opposed to having to hang on to this other thing and then you end up doing sort of everything and nothing all at once. I think that the sunk cost piece for at least some of my students that had, did come in with full business plans and one in particular pushed back and was like, Jessica, did you do this for your business? And my ability to say, well, I didn't know it at the time, but like, yes, <laughs> I didn't have the words to say it, but yeah, I've never written a business plan and I don't really intend to. And being able to say, well, what were you hoping to get out of the business plan? If you're a person who really benefits from documenting your vision, then by all means, document your vision, but don't use that necessarily as the crutch as to not get started. Document your vision and get started. Yes, because I'm, I don't know if the people know this listening to this, but I am the biggest fan of writing stuff down. Like I love to make notes. I love to brainstorm. I love to write stuff down. I use this software called OneNote and it's like my external mind is in that thing. Everything is written down, all my ideas and thoughts. It's all catalogued. I can go back and see what 2015 Alan was thinking. Sometimes I do that and it scares me. I love writing stuff down, but I do it to clarify my thoughts and then help me take action. I think quite often business plans have the effect of stopping action because they become too complex, they become too big. Did the original syllabus you received when you set up this course have business planning? Do you still teach business planning? Did the original syllabus have it? Do you still teach it? What role does business planning have in your entrepreneurship role and how has that changed? Yeah, I definitely, for the entrepreneurial finance course, I did include a business planning component because many of those students were interested in pursuing financing down the road. And so currently, at least still here, if you are going to or intend to pursue financing, you will need a business plan. I think that's the same the world over. Like, If someone's going to give you cash, they want to see proof that they're going to get it back. Right. But also, I tried to approach it in both courses from the two different lenses, right? The content, what we're learning is non-traditional. And also there's this traditional component because you might take more to the traditional world. And also the entrepreneurs that I brought in, by and large, followed a traditional path. They wrote a business plan, they got a bank loan. And so their perspective is coming in too. And so how do you use the business plan? How do you use these traditional sort of more academic outputs to inform your decisions moving forward. Isn't that interesting how the two worlds blend? Because if you start a small business as you have, the mobile bike repair shop, you built it through creating sales, you reinvested the profits to get the next truck, the next van. Like I doubt you ever need to take a business loan. I doubt you'll ever really need to operate with the traditional world in that sense. You just do what you do and build it from profit. But for some other businesses, there is a stage where you start operating with the traditional world. And my business is there at the moment. We operate with universities. We operate with councils. They're way more traditional. They like things written down. They like plans. And your business has to change at that stage. And you kind of learn it. I guess what we've said to people over the years is you might need that later. But to start, you probably don't. And I think there's a difference in what you need to know to get your business going and what you need to grow your business. What do you think the fundamentals of helping people start a business are? Like, What's the key things you think, if someone's coming to you, 
What do they really need to know to get going? I think in order to get going, they need to know who their customer is and why. What problem are you solving and for who? I think that there are often business owners that at least through the small business development center that come in that, you know, they're going to start a bakery and that's great. And that's because they have a skill to create delicious baked goods and I'm all for delicious baked goods, but what sets your business apart? Why would someone choose this bakery in this location or try this particular pastry? What sets it apart? What problem are you solving that exists in this area? I think as long as you can state what problem you're seeking to solve, that's really what you need in order to get started. And just the will or an idea as to where you might find your customer, whether that's a farmer's market or a pre-sale or a pop-up at a local coffee shop or what, whatever it might look like, to be able to go into the business owner or the place that you're looking to borrow space from or, or whatever to be able to conduct this test when you speak with them, what problem are you solving for their customer? That's what I think you need to start a business. I love that. And then you go and speak to the customer and say, I've got this idea. I think it'll make your life better in this way. It'll fix this problem. Would you like to buy it? Absolutely. (laughs) Which is my favorite awkward moment in a way. It's also when I do it, one of the moments I still... Like, I feel a bit awkward when I look at someone and say, I've got this idea. Are you in? Like, just say, yes, we'll take care of the details. And then you sit there awkwardly trying not to speak (laughs) whilst they think about it. Yeah, you're like, use your silence, use your silence. It's going to be okay. (laughs) (laughs) I love those silences when I'm presenting. I hate them when I'm actually doing the business myself. Sure. So that's how we get going. That's how we launch. What's your experience been like operating in the world of a university whilst teaching these alternate methodologies? Yeah, I think that I have a unique experience in that I was essentially given the opportunity to create and and teach what I'd like, but I'm not certain that I consistently align with the vision of the university in that sometimes there are different contests or pitch programs or things of that nature. And I have not yet incorporated those into part of my course. And I think that that is, it's an interesting world that, that I'm living in because I am an entrepreneur. I do have this experience. I do consult with other small businesses, but then also from an academic perspective, pitch contests and business incubators and things of that nature where it it is less rooted in reality might be more appealing from a purely academic standpoint, if that makes sense. It does to me. I'd love to know your thought because every university I speak to, pretty much every traditional organization I speak to that wants to work with me says, can we run a dragon's den or a shark tank? Can we run a contest where we get a panel of judges, everyone lines up and pitches and we'll give the winner a thousands or whatever it is, pounds, dollars, anything like that. We'll give them some cash. What's your opinion on those? Because I have a fairly strong opinion, but I want to know yours before I... Uh... <laughs> yeah, I have a fairly strong opinion as well. And I think it is because I come from this perspective where just do it, just go out and try it. And so I find, I take much more pride in the fact that my students actually tested out in real time, real business opportunities that they intend to pursue in my class, as opposed to spending a weekend developing 
a business that they don't actually have any intention of running. They're just interested in a, in a contest and they're interested in learning the entrepreneurial experience. But I don't think that that's something that is cookie cutter that you can sort of say, this is what it is to be an entrepreneur. Let's start with your business plan. When I know several business owners that just start, right? My entrepreneurial experience did not involve a business plan. It just involved giving it a shot. I find this fascinating, the whole bit about the pitch contest, because like, I struggle with it as a judge. And I've been a judge on the Henley Business School one, the Reading Business School one. I've been a judge at lots of sort of entrepreneurial contests. And I struggle with it because there's two thoughts going through my mind. One is, I don't know if they're going to be successful. Some of the weirdest businesses that I never would have backed have been hugely successful. Who knew painting a face on a stone and giving it a name would have made you a million dollars in year one? Who knew doing zombie fitness training was a thing? Whatever it is, like there's crazy ideas I never would have backed because I never would have bought them. The two views I have is, would I buy and would other people buy? And I'm kind of sitting there as a judge trying to predict what the market wants. And I know every time I try and make a prediction, I get it wrong. I'd rather let the market speak for itself. So a true test of entrepreneurship would be to take each business and put it in front of the market they want to sell to. And the person who gets the most orders wins the contest. That'd be a true test of your business idea rather than a a judge trying to predict, is this going to sell or not? And even the Dragon's Den and the Shark's Tank people but they only have a 50-50 success rate of predicting whether those... And these are the, the billionaire, the millionaire people that we all think, oh, they know so much about business. And they do, but they still can't predict the future. They can't predict the future. Interestingly enough, there was a Dragon's Den business that was one of our primary competitors in the mobile repair space in Cleveland when we started. And that that business is no, like that parent company is still in business, but the Cleveland subsidiary is not. So I, I don't think it's Cleveland franchise, not subsidiary, but yeah. I love that. So you crushed the dragons and the sharks. Uh, we should rename you something even better. What's better than a dragon or a shark? I don't know, like a velociraptor? Is that? Oh, oh that the velociraptor cool. biking business. That's yeah, so cool. I love that. <laughs> But it's fascinating. Let me share a a short example with you, and I'd love your thoughts on this. I was judging an entrepreneurial contest, one of these exact things we're saying. And there was one business that had an automated pet feeder, and that was their business. They'd mocked up a demo. They'd done some projections of the British market, you know, the standard thing. The British market for pets is worth X. Therefore, if we secure 5%, we can be a billion-dollar company and all the rest of it. The standard predictions every entrepreneur makes. Not a huge fan of those. But anyway, that was one business, but they'd never sold anything. It's just an idea. And actually, as I was sat there watching the contest, I just opened up eBay and typed in auto pet feeder. And there was like five available from China for half the price of what they were saying. And then there was another kid. He'd built a YouTube channel. He'd had 70,000 subscribers. It was in music and stuff, and he'd launched a clothing brand. And that clothing brand, he'd started to sell sweatshirts, hoodies, that sort of stuff. And I can't remember what he made in the first year. It was 50, 60,000 pounds profit in the first year. And the kid had made real money. And then we go back up, and all the other judges are saying, We think this pet feeder has more potential. 
like the YouTube channel is one guy, like how's that ever going to grow? Like, well, he can grow it. He'll just build the channel and sell more shirts. He'll produce his own line. He'll do this. And they go, yeah, but this thing's more investable. I'm going, well, just because the other guy's, why does he even need your money? Like he's making his own money. He doesn't need any of your money. So actually I think he's a better business. And we had this huge argument. Like we deliberated for two hours. I think it was the longest they'd had anyone deliberating. And I was standing fast going, there's no way I'm voting for this thing that you can get on eBay for half the price. And they were going, I'm no way I'm voting for this kid who sells T-shirts online because he's not investable. He's making a profit. Uh, and we had this big thing for about two hours. Like, what are your thoughts about that? I think so frequently, especially with these academic contests, they actually look down upon the businesses that are already proving their concept, right? They say, well, that's that's not necessarily in the spirit of what the competition has intended for a, an existing business to participate. And I'm, I'm not quite sure why that is. If there's someone who already has an audience, already has the customers, and has proven their concept, I think that it's this idea of a fantasy business that you and I have both shared today would is going to change. Even if they do operate, it will most certainly alter in the intended vision and what it looks like compared to like real life and what it looks like to really start a business. It's this like perfect vision of what it is to start and run a business. And it's usually a corporation and it's usually investable and there's usually rounds of raising money. That's not what small business looks like in many, many cases. And so I think that that's sort of the academic versus sort of real world issue that those things bring up for me. And I think in the UK, we have this thing that I've been involved in where the institutions, we, we did a lot of work with the government and they were looking for those investable companies that would hire 1,000 people. So you build a big business and you hire 1,000 people. And we were coming at it from the other end of, I don't want to build a giant business. I want to help 10,000 people make their own money. And they'll all do it individually by running bike stores and bakeries and random little things. Because actually, 96% of the economy is made up of these tiny little businesses so let's stop trying to find the unicorns and let's start helping everyone trying to make their money. Because if you help those people, you'll make more of a difference in the economy. And we were just coming at it from such different ends. And I think that's what caused a lot of our battles in the early days, caused a huge amount of our battles. That makes sense. As a bike shop, we applied for a pitch contest, I think in like 2018. And it was a, a Cleveland program. And I thought, you know, if I can pitch it well, we, we are expanding, we are increasing. And, and I think that if I could pitch it well, maybe we'll win the grant. And we were not able to advance because we didn't have a plan to hire X number of people. I said before, I don't want to go for bicycle domination. I just want to enjoy what we do. And so that wasn't in the cards, but that's what they're really looking for. It's capital infusion, how many jobs are created. Those are the big things. Where did you, the bank loan you money from? What is your growth plan and how much money did that require? Well, that's really interesting because like, so for you, you've built this bicycle business with your husband on the side. It's working really well. And I didn't mean your husband was on the side. Sorry, that sounded no, wrong, but you know what sure. I mean. Yes, I know. Yeah. You've built this bike business and there's a potential that it'll make enough money in the season that you can have the off-season to go and cycle around wherever you're going, Ecuador, Colombia, Brazil, who knows. You go and cycle the world and enjoy it. However, there's such a drive in entrepreneurship to be 
scalable, to grow, to do the thing. And you might, if you're not growing, you're dying um, and all of those things. How do we balance wanting to build a lifestyle business that gives you the life you want with happy customers, making money and enjoying it with the drive in entrepreneurship to scale, which like, I don't always, I don't personally always want. I just want to have fun. Like, how do you justify those things? Yeah, we definitely have the number one question that we get asked is like, well, what do you guys do in the winter? Or you have a three week wait, you should hire somebody. But I don't have a job for them to do in the winter time. And I don't want to create one. I, I don't want to have to lay someone off. I don't want to have to only hire them seasonally. And so I think we have really benefited from just being honest with our customers and being honest with what our intentions are. Instead of saying, well, in the winter, we you know do this and sometimes we do some business and we do bigger projects, which is what we used to say. Now we say we travel, we travel in the wintertime. And so we just like stop being a bike shop and we go travel and then we come back and we work every single day in the season. And, and that's just how our life is balanced. I think being honest about where your personal vision for your business or for whatever you're doing. I think that has really helped us. Because one of the things for me is entrepreneurship is about not just helping customers. It's about creating the life you want to live. A hundred percent. But I think we forget about that bit in this rush to scale and build businesses. We forget, what do I want my life to be like? And I had this revelation, which I'd love your thoughts on. I designed a business that takes me to the communities that need it the most. So I'm traveling around the UK, going to the communities that need my support the most, which is incredibly enriching. It's amazing. But after six years of doing it, and in the sixth year, being on the road every single week, traveling the country, leaving at 4am on a Monday and returning at 8pm on a Friday, not seeing my wife during the week, it got to me. And I was driving to make money, scale, build, doing all of that, but at the cost of my health and my life. Simon and I actually had an emergency meeting once based on the fact we were both getting fat. We were. We were getting so fat traveling around the country. We had this emergency meeting of if we keep going like this, we're going to be the fat, bald 50-year-olds in an expensive car dying and not really making any difference. And we had to make large lifestyle and business changes. Yeah. What are your thoughts about balancing the desire for growth and the impact or the cost? It's interesting that you asked that this year because so the bike industry as a whole really exploded in 2020, right, with the COVID COVID crisis. And so we were working 15-hour days every day, and it just is not sustainable. And so this year, we've made some tweaks to our business to be able to say, we're going to start at 9.30, and our last appointment is going to end sometime between 6 and 7, and that's going to be okay. And if we make less money this year, that's going to be okay because maybe, well, we live a five minute stroll from Lake Erie and we both were reflecting on the fact that we didn't go to the lake last year. We literally live a five minute walk from the lake and we just didn't go. And so we've been to the lake more this year than in any other season. And we're still very busy and we still have a wait, but it's worth it for our sort of mental health. And if we're going to do this for much longer, we, we need to sort of figure out a way that it works. Yeah, you have to f- figure out a way that it works. You need to be healthy. You need to have time to walk with your friends, your partners, experience life. Yeah, there's more to life than work. 
And I think we used to get caught up in the fact that it was a seasonal business. So we'll just work really, really, really hard for 180 days and then we'll get some time off. <laughs> for 180 days. <laughs> just that sentence, we'll work yeah. hard for 180 days. Right. That's not a real thing. You can't. We've tried and it, you know, we did it for a couple of years and now we would like to do that differently. And so I think that being willing to make changes and to, to know that our numbers might be lower and that's okay because we had more time together. We had more days off. We were able to enjoy more of these months and then, you know, maybe we'll figure out something to do a little bit in December as opposed to just going so hard until it was time to be done. I love that. I do think it comes in seasons because when you start, you are excited, engaged. Like if you're listening to this now and you're just starting, like go full out, enjoy it, like do it all. And then you get to a stage where you go, I've been full out. Uh, I need a break. Um, Sure. And I remember 2015, Katie changed from being working at one of the big four consulting firms and then she went contracting and she was being paid by the day. And when we had that first contract, she was being paid by the day. Why would you take a day off? And she had a six-month contract and she worked every day. And I worked every day. We didn't take a holiday and then extended it for three months. So now we've done nine months without taking a day off. But we're worried that it's not going to repeat. So then we did the next three-month contract without taking a day off. And then after a year of working every single day, we were like, okay, this might keep going for a while. (laughs) We probably need a holiday. But 2015 was the year of no holidays. It was also a year of explosive business growth for both of us and our finances. But yeah, I think there's this scarcity mentality of it might not be there in the future. So I better take it now. And I have that. Absolutely. I think that that that's really present, especially when there's an industry boom. It's like, well, we just... We don't know when parts are going to run out. We don't know when when people are going to say, oh, I, I don't think I want to ride this bicycle that I just had tuned up because I needed something to do. So, you know, you just want to take advantage of that opportunity. But realizing that that also comes with a cost, I think, was important. Definitely. Definitely. So I'd love to know, we have some entrepreneurial educators who listen to the podcast. You're one of them. Uh, and there's some others too. I'd love to know, like... What are your thoughts for entrepreneurial educators out there about the best way or the way to help people become entrepreneurs? And if you're listening to this and you think, well, I'm not an entrepreneurial educator, well, it doesn't really matter. You are learning entrepreneurship. So the things Jessica is going to talk to us about, like you are learning entrepreneurship right now by building a business. And I think it's fascinating. So what are your messages for the entrepreneurial educators out there about helping people to actually create their own income, get going. Yeah. Well, even my question, I'm thinking, what's the goal of an entrepreneurial course? Right. Well, I think that's really it. How do you create goals and objectives that go beyond creating a document at the end, that go beyond just the academic component? How do you start the conversations? How do you encourage your students to find businesses in the area that might have started from a more unique place or a place that didn't require large amounts of of capital infusion. I think that that's really where this starts. Interviewing other business owners, bringing the business owners into my class was game changing. To be able to hear their different perspectives and stories and to hear the students frequently reference back was incredible. And so 
I think that those are the big takeaways for me. How do you involve the local community in your course, especially if you can pull it off to do it on Zoom? Asking an entrepreneur for 45 minutes on Zoom is very, very different than asking for an entrepreneur to take time out of their day to come down, find parking at the local university and join your class. I think that taking advantage of the fact that we have all become, it seems, more comfortable with this virtual world. How do you tap into the local environment, hear their stories, and then apply not traditional concepts so that they might be able to take action as opposed to get a grade? I love that message. I love that message. We always had this idea of building our own permanent business school, which might be happening in the future. But we had this idea of it like you don't get a certificate at the end of the course, you get a customer. And then Simon said to me, actually, you get a certificate and a customer because <laughs> sure. we can do both. It's not mutually exclusive. But leaving a business course with a customer and our desire for what we're building is to be the only business school that you make more money than it costs you attending. Oh, that's an excellent goal. Absolutely. It's definitely our goal in the future. So the final sort of question for the people listening to this who are actually in the process of building businesses, starting, maybe they haven't even started, they've just got an idea and they're getting going. Like, what are your biggest learnings that could help them unlock the next stage of their progress? Like, what do you say to people who come to you that's saying, like, I want to build a business, but I'm stuck? How do you unlock progress and moving on for people? Yeah, I really start with the why, the question of why. And this is something that I learned from the principal that taught me everything that I know about teaching. I would come to him with like a science lesson and go through it. And he would not stop asking why until I came down to like the really true, like, this is what I want the students to learn. And so I think if you want to grow your business, if you want to get started with a business, understanding why you want to make that choice and then figuring out ways to make your actions smaller so that they are able to be worked out. Instead of saying, you know, I have this growth opportunity and I've already tested my market, but I need $100,000. So I need to write a business plan and I, I'm so overwhelmed. You're not writing a business plan. You're describing the problem that you're solving. You're just starting there. Or instead of saying, well, I want to start a restaurant, but I don't, I don't know what I would make and I don't know what. Okay, let's start with find a place that you might be able to ask, can I borrow your space for the afternoon? Like make it smaller so that it's not this big daunting task. It's the baby steps that you need to be able to start to take action. I absolutely love that. One of the thoughts that's been reoccurring for me recently, I continuously say on the podcast, the extraordinary belongs to those that create it, uh, meaning you should build it. And the thought that's been resonating recently is the extraordinary is built from the mundane, small actions you take on a day-to-day basis. So sending an email, making a phone call, whatever it is, those tiny, tiny actions that's actually the building blocks of an extraordinary future. Absolutely. And and not getting bogged down in necessarily knowing every single detail before you jump in. All of the details will change. They'll all change. And so giving something a shot and being able to say, you know, fail fast and fail cheap, like that didn't work. Let's try something different. I think that's where really great businesses are built, not those that created a whole vision on paper. And then 
it didn't fully execute. And now they're not only sad because their vision didn't come to fruition, but also, you know, in debt or hanging on to something that's not quite working. Yes, I love that. And I think that's an incredible message for anyone listening to this. If you've tried to launch something and you've been launching it for a couple of years and you've spoken to loads of customers, you've talked to lots of people, stop hanging on. It might be time to just twist a little, change a little, try something different. Stop hanging on. Uh, Let go of the sunk cost. Try something new because it's only with trying something different that you'll get different results. That's a challenge to do, though. How do you let go? I think you, it's kind of like the Marie Kondo thing. You you acknowledge that it happened and you are thankful for what you were able to learn from it. And then you apply what you learned to the next thing that you're doing. I really do think that it's often business owners that know that they need to pivot and just add that struggle really the most. Thank it for its service and and sort of let it go as opposed to <laughs> holding on and then adding more things that you think might work. It reminds me of the time I went to Texas and I was so inspired by Texas culture. I brought some cowboy boots. I spent like a hundred bucks on these cowboy boots. They looked fancy and uh, I took them home to England. I wore them once and like they had heels and stuff and my legs ached and they were uncomfortable and they sat in the cupboard for about three years and eventually I had to pick them up. And I remember picking them up, giving them a kiss and saying, thank you for teaching me that cowboy boots aren't for me. But it was tough letting go of those cowboy boots because I like, I don't know. I thought they were very cool at the time. Then when I wore them, I just felt self-conscious, uncomfortable and painful. Yeah. <laughs> just imagining you walking around in like, like a pop-up business school with like cowboy boots on. That's pretty fun. <laughs> I thought they were so cool. I was sure. enamored by barbecue food, cowboy boots, and big belt buckles. It was amazing. That should be the photo for this episode, like you and your cowboy boots. <laughs> that would be perfect. Oh, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your thoughts, ideas, and wisdom. I've absolutely loved it. Do you have a closing thought for the audience that are listening? I mean, besides just get started and and give it a shot and and give it a try, I could not be more thankful for the content that you produce. It has really transformed the way that I approach entrepreneurship, the way that I approach my clients. And it's been incredible to have you be part of the courses. And I just can't thank you enough. And I can't recommend this content enough. This is probably the most last minute outro I've recorded for a show so far. As you know, I like to record and plan months up front so I don't get behind and everything is recorded and released in the right order for you. But today is Sunday, the 12th of September, and this episode comes out. You will have just listened to Jessica Yox teaching entrepreneurship on the 13th of September. So I feel like I'm almost speaking to you live right now. There's lots to tell you. The next episode up, I'm really looking forward to sharing with you is Travis Hauser, and he took the tools he learned from the podcast and he launched a golfing business. Now, I love having different types of businesses on the show, and it's really cool to see how he has taken these tools, launched his own golf business. And it's fascinating as you start to see the different businesses types and realize the similarities between the different things. There are always nuances. Like the coaching season that comes after Andrew is going to be all about launching a food truck. And there are nuances to each business, but there are more similarities 
in the principles of sales, marketing, making things happen, then there are differences. So the next episode 34 is Travis Hauser about getting rejected and starting a business in golf. Episode 35, I'm so excited about sharing this with you. We have Jessica is back and Travis will be here. They've listened to every show we've done so far and they are doing their top 10 episodes from everything we've done so far, which is coming up for like 75, 80 different episodes. And the best bit about this, the value for you is they will be sharing the key learnings they got out of each of those episodes. So this is going to be a fantastically powerful episode. Episode 36 is writing proposals that convert. Patrick, the podcast manager, has gone independent and is looking for more business in the podcast world. And he was struggling to find people to work with. So we did an episode about how to write proposals. You will find out what happened as well, because he recorded a couple of bits after the episode was recorded to tell us how he got on and whether the proposals actually worked or not. And then 37, we have a huge episode. And I know this is one I struggled with massively when I launched my business. And I know lots of you have had challenges with as well. It's pricing. How do you price your product? How do you make sure you earn enough? How do you balance that with being too greedy? So we've got episode 37, pricing. Then season two is going to run all the way to Christmas and episode 50 will be right before Christmas. Uh, So there's a huge amount to share with you. Then I would like to ask you for something as well, please. And what I'd like to ask you for is a nomination in a podcast award. Now, I've said many times on the show that you don't get what you deserve in life. You get what you ask for. And this is one that I still have to work for as well, because I can't just sit here being a deserving podcast. I have to go out there and ask for nominations and awards. And I want to, because if we get nominated for an award, if we get an award, it will share the message to a broader audience and we will find more people to help because despite contrary belief, there are still people out there who are starting businesses the traditional way with startup loans, borrowing money and taking on huge risk when they don't need to. So I want to reach those people and spread the message of debt-free entrepreneurship and building the life that you actually want. So the Discover Pods Awards are out right now. If you just Google Discover Pods Awards, there's a big red button at the top that says nominate. If you click on that, all you need to do is put in your email address and then choose a category that you think our podcast fits in. There are two I think it fits in. Rather egotistically, you could vote for us as best overall podcast. And then there is also best business podcast. So you would just type rebel entrepreneur in there and press submit. It'll take you about 60 seconds to do. I would really appreciate it if you would vote for our podcast in that awards. So go to Google, type Discover Pods Awards, click on Nominate, and then put Rebel Entrepreneur for Best Overall Podcast and Best Business Podcast. That would really help. One final thing, Katie and I are in Tulsa, Oklahoma at the moment. So if you happen to be listening to this somewhere around Tulsa, Oklahoma, and you'd like to hang out for a coffee, then send me a message. You can find me on alandonegan.com. Send me a message. We're here for about three weeks. 
and then we're heading probably back to Colombia to see our friends down there and hang out down in Bogota and hopefully Medellin as well. One last item. If you've got any ideas for the last show of the series, I'm planning that now. I thought about doing your comments and your questions. I thought about doing a big celebration. I don't know if you've got any crazy ideas that you want to share with us that you would like to see on the last episode of this season, or indeed what you'd want for the first episode of next season, then let me know, because I always love your ideas and your energy. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Thank you so much for giving your time and your energy and listening to us. And take what you learn from these episodes and go and apply it to your life, because the extraordinary belongs to those that create it. You can have any life you want to. Choose to build something cool. Choose to take action. Choose to work to make your dreams become reality. Stand out. Be different. Be yourself. Be a rebel entrepreneur.